So if you have a Bible with you, please, would you please uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. This morning, I want to begin a series on the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And it's a series on the Sermon on the Mount. I've entitled it Faithful Flourishing. Because it strikes me that when we read this sermon, 
a collection of sayings brought together by Matthew from Jesus' own mouth. We are reading some of the greatest and profoundest teaching imaginable. We are living in a world that is wrought with uncertainty. I'll be talking more about that tonight. We live in a culture that has relativized ethics, that has relativized morality, and we are part of a church that by and large is losing its capacity to read, reflect on, and understand the Bible. The challenges of that may not be felt very strongly by you, but sisters and brothers, if we don't do something about this biblical illiteracy that exists amongst our generation and amongst the church, then in 15 or 20 years we will be in the greatest crisis the church has ever seen. The Sermon on the Mount given to us by Matthew from Jesus is the most wonderful, life-giving, liberating, challenging, inspiring, devastating message that you will ever read. It cuts through your heart, through all of the excuses of our lives and gets to the very center of who we are. It has transformed cultures. It's transformed the world from great religious leaders of other traditions all the way through to great politicians and leaders. Many have seen in this sermon the most remarkable thing. Oswald Chambers, the famous American um, pastor and writer, once said, the Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from identification with Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way in us. I have been working on a book on the Sermon on the Mount for about nine years. My publisher keeps telling me off because they keep wanting it back. I had a conversation with them just a few months ago and they said, how many words are you sitting at for this book now? And I said about 160,000. To give you some level of understanding, that's about seven or 800 pages. They said, that's too big. I said, well, that's only about half of it. <laughs> I'm not going to preach 170, 60,000 words at you over the next um, months. But I want to invite you with me into an exploration of this sermon and to allow yourself to slow down and think about it and to let it penetrate your heart and soul. It is my hope that as you do, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, will do something in you. There's not a person in this room and there's not a person watching online. In fact, there's not a Christian alive on earth today who doesn't need to engage with this, not me, but with the Sermon on the Mount. It has the keys to human flourishing. All around you, you will have people telling you what it looks like to live a fruitful Christian or a fruitful human life. Do this and you'll be happy. Get this and you'll be happy. Sleep with this person and you'll be happy. Express yourself in this way and you'll be happy. Find your identity here and you'll be happy. Nowhere can bring happiness other than lasting happiness, that is, other than Christ. And as he unpacks, as Matthew sets this teaching together, he does something that is utterly, utterly transformative. The problem with the Christian church around the Sermon on the Mount is many of us want to say we love it, but few of us are willing to live under it. It's one thing to say I really like the Sermon on the Mount. It's another thing to say I am trying to live by the Sermon on the Mount. 
Let me use two phrases for you that might help you understand what I'm suggesting. They're technical phrases, but they are important. Each of you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, has at least two theological worldviews that are shaping how you engage with the world. One is your espoused theology. That is what you tell other people you believe about God. The other is your operand theology. That is what you live. And what you live is what you believe about God, not what you say. Too many of us say we believe in giving, but just not this month. We believe in local church, but only when we like it. We believe in morality, so long as I'm not being challenged about my moral choices. We believe in ethics, so long as my ethics are enshrined. We believe in community, but community built on my terms, around my preferences and my likes. We believe in worship, but only when we're in the mood. That's espoused theology. We believe in grace, but not toward the person who has hurt us. We believe in the forgiveness of everyone except that person who has really broken our hearts. Then there is our operant theology, what we actually live, the way we behave, what we do with our time, our money, our thought life, our resources, our ideas, our relationships, our commitments. And sisters and brothers, whether this is comfortable for you or not, that is what you really believe. When Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, from 23 through to 25, explains what will happen in the last days of judgment, you will note very carefully that what he says is, "Um, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. He doesn't say once. You said you believed these things. He says, what you live is what you believe. The Sermon on the Mount is not about what we only believe in our heads. It's about what we live. It is a key to liberation. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the American poet, says this. "Most Most people are willing to take the Sermon on the Mount as a flag to sail under. But few will use it as a rudder by which to steer. I'm not inviting you to study this intellectually only over the next few months or years, depending on how long it takes. Hopefully not as long as Martin Lloyd-Jones, who took seven years to go through Romans in Westminster Chapel. I'm inviting you instead to allow this to become the rudder that steers your life, and I believe that's possible. There are lots of different ways of approaching this sermon. There are those that will tell you that this is the code for living that you can live if you try hard enough. I think they're wrong. There are those that will tell you that this is a high standard of life that you are called to aspire to, but don't worry about not reaching it. I think they're wrong. There'd be great sermon theories preached on the Sermon on the, on the Mount by Martin Lloyd-Jones, by R.T. Kendall, by Thomas Watson, the English Puritan of the 17th century by John Owen, Amy Temple McPherson preached on the Sermon on the Mount many, many years ago. Amy Carmichael preached a series on the Sermon on the Mount 
almost a century ago. There's been great teaching on this sermon. There's been great application, much better than I can bring you. But what I want you to do with me is journey through it in the hope that it will help you to live better. I think one of the best, if you're going to buy a book on this, the best book that I have read, it's very small print and it's in double column and it feels like a Bible and difficult to read, is R.T. Kendall's little exposition of it, which is brilliant in its application. I want to suggest to you that the Sermon on the Mount does a series of things all at the same time. The first thing that it does is show us that a better life is possible. It shows us what it feels like to be truly, genuinely human. Not to live a pretend human life, but to be really alive. Let me, for a moment, and this is all I want to do this morning, is kind of set the tone of this series for you. I want to take you through this sermon, um, uh, not my sermon series, the Sermon on the Mount, so that you get an understanding of the full flow of it. It's contained in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. If you want to highlight three verses across this sermon that can summarize all of it, I would suggest that you memorize Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek the kingdom of God first, and everything else will be added unto you. And Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Learn those three verses. Allow them to become linchpins of your moral, ethical, and spiritual life. And everything will change. They are challenging. They're profound. I wonder if you've ever heard a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount from beginning to end. Or have you had a little bit pulled from here and a little bit pulled from there and a little bit pulled from the end of it? Actually, to understand it, to allow it to sink into our souls, we need to read the whole thing and we need to hear teaching on the whole thing and reflect on it entirely. Matthew chapter 5 is about God and us on the inside. In the first few verses, which I will focus on in a moment or two, we're told who this is addressed to. From verse 3 down to verse 11, we read something called the Beatitudes. We'll be looking at them over the next few weeks. They are remarkably challenging. Promises of blessing, happiness, and fulfillment to people whose lives are broken, devastated, and torn apart by grief, loss, and poverty. They describe an upside-down approach to the world that upsets the powerful that dismantles power structures, that reminds people that being made in God's image is far more important than the stuff that we have around us. From verses 13 through to 17 of Matthew chapter 5, we are told that, um, that, that, that we can trust God even in the hardest and most difficult of circumstances. From verses 13 through to 16, we're told that we are people who are to let our light shine through what we do and how we live and the choices that we make. We're not to be followers of Jesus who hide away from our culture or run away from our world or pretend that the challenges that you're facing in your family or in your workplace aren't there. Instead, we are to be lights in dark places, cities on hills, salts that preserve. We'll get to it um, in a few weeks' time. Then from verse 17 down to verse 24 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says the most profound thing. It is earth-shattering in its importance. Matthew sets out Jesus as a new Moses. 
He presents five sets of teaching from Jesus. Each one is pre-described by Jesus going up a mountain because Moses went up a mountain to give the to receive the law from God in the sermon in the um, Exodus. Those five sets of teaching draw together summaries of Jesus' teaching, what he said about different things. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew presents Moses, Jesus as a new Moses, going up a mountain, sitting down, talking to those that are with him, explaining to them truths and aphorisms and axioms and little statements. Here's an uncomfortable thing. The way he does it shows very clearly that his intention, you ready to be shocked? was that those who heard the Sermon on the Mount would memorize it. That is more than possible for nearly everybody in this room. And then through their lives be able to draw on its richness. To remember the statements, the comments, the thoughts, the ideas, the instructions, the guidance, the promises, the blessings, the warnings of this. And he presents Jesus as a new Moses. Now here's the thing from verses 17 down to 24. Jesus says something that modern biblical scholars find really difficult to understand. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or that I've come to destroy it. There's an awful lot of people in the church today tell you, ignore the law, ignore the Old Testament, ignore the prophets, ignore the Pentateuch, ignore Moses, ignore what the Bible says about anything other than the red bits. Just remember the bits that Jesus has said. They're the bits that matter to you. Jesus blows that argument out of the water. When he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he says it twice in those verses. The Jewish understanding of law wasn't a set of codes to be observed. It wasn't a set of rules that decided whether you were in or out. The Jewish idea of law is Torah. And the Torah was a way of life. It was a set of promises and instructions and views and a worldview, a way of looking at life, looking at God, looking at yourself and understanding the world. At the center of it, it was sometimes called, by the way, the king of the Jews. Which makes it interesting that when Jesus was crucified, above his head was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic for the world to see, the king of the Jews. Jesus in Matthew 5, 17 through to 24, says, do not think I have come to abolish the law, I have come to fulfill it. Actually, he says something even more profoundly. He says to these Jewish people listening to him, you think you can learn the law. You can get a series of statements into your head and if you know them in here, then you've lived it. And he says to you, there's something much more. He says to them, there's something much more important happening here. I am the law. I am the living, breathing expression of what it means to be alive. I'm a living, breathing expression of flourishing, of humanness, of identity, of purpose, of meaning, of significance, of holiness, of truth, of righteousness, of ethics, of morality. If you want to know what it means to live well in God's plans, you are looking at it. Maybe we should read the sermon. Then he goes on from Matthew 5, 5 verses 25, all the way through to verse 48. 
to summarize the Old Testament Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, by identifying six key areas. And he says, in these areas, you have heard it said that you are to behave like this. There are things like um, words, promises, sexuality, relationships, hatred, relation, uh, and how you handle conflict. You have heard it said that you must do this. But I say to you, you must do this. He's using a rabbinic form of teaching. I've told you this before. When rabbis were teaching, they would say, you've heard it said, and they would quote Moses, which is exactly what Jesus does. And then they would say, and, and then they quote a rabbi, says, and, then another rabbi, and, then another rabbi. And then they would say at the end of their teaching, and I say to you, indicating that they could be trusted because their teaching goes all the way back to Moses. Jesus does something that no other rabbi is ever known to have done at any point in Jewish history, then or since. You have heard it said, and he quotes Moses. Then he quotes nobody else. And instead of using the words, and I say to you, he says, but I say to you. And he takes Moses and he explains to the Jewish people what Moses meant. He expands their understanding. He doesn't demolish it. He doesn't remove it. He doesn't categorize it and he doesn't reject it. Each time he expands it, he teaches them, he takes them from a law, a life of law in their understanding, which was never God's purpose, to a life of grace, which was always God's purpose. And in every area, sisters and brothers, this new Moses says that grace lifts the bar. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't give you options for ignoring God's commands. It is grace and grace alone that enables you to live his commands. Grace doesn't lower the bar in ethics. It raises them. Jesus doesn't come so that you can be free to do what you like. He comes to liberate you to do what God likes. The rest of Matthew 5 explains that. This inner conflict that Paul talked about in Romans 6 and 7 about things that he wants to do but doesn't do and things that he doesn't want to do and he does do and how he gets over it. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives you examples and says there's, there's a higher call in your life than you think is possible. There's a better way of living around words, around relationships, around sexuality, around possessions, around resentment, around fear, around anxiety. There's a better way to live which makes you more alive. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus turns his attention away from our inner conflicts out toward our relationship with stuff. He begins by talking about religious practices, prayer, fasting, and giving. Then he turns his attention to what we do with worry and anxiety and how we handle possessions. And reminds them that the key to worry is how, you'll not believe this, but the key to how you handle worry is what you do with stuff. The key to how you handle anxiety is how you handle things. You can do things physically with your life. You can get practices around giving and generosity that help you live a worry-free life. He reminds them at the end of that chapter that they are to be kingdom people first. And then in Matthew chapter 7, he moves away from the relationship between them and God themselves in five, them and stuff in six, to the relationship with other people in Matthew chapter seven. 
and he reminds them about the importance of forgiveness, community, short accounts, faithfulness, honesty, truthfulness, integrity. And then at the end of the chapter, he goes on to explain to them, and there are spiritual tests that you can apply to your own life that can help you to flourish. One is around trees and fruit, one is around roads and ways, and one is around houses and where they are built. This sermon begins, and check it out, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus went up a hillside, and his disciples followed him, and they sat down, and he sat down and began to teach them by saying. That's all we're focusing on this morning. He gathers to himself his people. Let me tell you something. The Sermon on the Mount isn't a message for the world. It's not a message for Irish society or Northern Irish society or British society. Gandhi was wrong when he said this is the great inspiration for all people. This is a message to those who follow Jesus. Because this kind of lifestyle is not possible without him. It isn't possible to be kind and loving and gracious and forgiving and merciful and hopeful and generous and compassionate and patient without him. And the Sermon on the Mount sets out all of that. But it doesn't end with just the people of God. Go to the very end of the sermon and this is what you read. And those who listened to him were astounded by his authority and everybody was amazed because he taught as one with authority, not like those that the normal scribes and Pharisees. In other words, when the church hears this message, when the church lives this life, when you get this into your heart and soul and allow God by his grace to begin to live it out of you, your workplace will see, your family will see, our society will see, and they will take note that Christ is real because of the way we live. Many of us get more excited about the idea of God demonstrating his presence through a miracle than we do through a daily decision to live for Christ. Most people in the world will see Christ in a believer. The Sermon on the Mount is that invitation. Do you want to live a better life? Honestly, a life of hopefulness. When nobody else is looking, are you really content with your level of spirituality? When nobody else hears you, when nobody else sees you, do you know that there is more in your life that God could do? Hidden habits and words and attitudes that no one else can see. This series will help you. It will enable you to hear again the truths of Christ given to us that we might live well. I want to reflect on just the first couple of verses of this with you. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. There's always an effort involved. I want to ask you a question. It's on the screen. Together, across 2020 and into the years that lie ahead, I make no apology for asking this of this church family. Will we follow him? One of the great and important things that God has laid in my heart over the last few months is discipleship. That we are called to make disciples. 
I am not called to fill this room. I'm not called to build an extension, although I'm excited about it, but not as excited as seeing a life transformed. The calling that God has placed on me as a pastor is to disciple those in front of me that they might live more like Jesus. And contrary to 21st century thinking, that requires effort. It requires consistent commitment. It requires putting your mind and your heart and your spirit to work in the purposes of God. If you've ever had to struggle with a habit that you need to break, you know what that's like. Or struggle with a habit that you need to get into, you know what it's like. Will we follow him? The disciples, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Why didn't he stay at the bottom? Why didn't he address everything to the crowd? Why didn't he stay in the big throng of people and just shout across them because that's not how Christian faith works it's almost difficult for me to explain what I'm trying to say to you today and I don't want anybody listening online or in this room to misunderstand what I'm about to say but I can't, I don't have the capacity all of our pastors and our new elders and our new session if they're appointed we don't have the capacity to pastor tens of thousands of people But what we do have the capacity to do is to pastor those who are willing to follow Christ. What is a pastor's job? It's explained across the Bible in various different ways. In Luke 15, Jesus says, a pastor goes looking for those, a shepherd, he's like a shepherd or she's like a shepherd. They go looking for those that have strayed. They run after them. They try to rescue them and find them. We must never lose that sense. In Ezekiel and in Jeremiah, God uses the same image. He says, you, you, you're to care for the lame. You're to look after the weak. You're to look after those that are vulnerable. You're to, you're to find them and protect them and give them a sense of community and belonging. That has to be one of our responsibilities. But we cannot live your Christian life for you. And we can't keep chasing after you. If you spend your life saying, I don't want God's way, I don't want God's purpose, I don't want to walk in God's plans, then in the end, you have to live with those decisions, not me. My job is to pursue those that need help and care and compassion and to pastor this flock. Tens of thousands of people listen online to our services every week. I am glad that you are part of that community. And we do everything we can to help you to engage in this community. But I need you to understand something that isn't me um, being less than kind towards you. My responsibility is to pastor this flock. To give my time to you. When God called me to Dundonald Elam, he called me to this community. So are you in it or not? Are you going to walk this series? Are you going to walk closer to Jesus or not? You can't build community coming once a month. You can't grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, dipping in and out when you want to. There's something underneath that that is required, and that is a mutual commitment to one another. Jesus calls and teaches those who came close to him. He went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So my invitation to you is, will you follow him? Will you sit with him? 
time we sit with him together. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the Christian faith is ultimately not only a matter of doctrine or understanding or of intellect, it is a condition of the heart. How is your heart? The church across Northern Ireland has plenty of services and churches and I may empty this congregation as a result of this series that will tickle your ears and tell you how much God loves you and that there's nothing that you need to do to pursue him but they are wrong. I can show you plenty of congregations where the Bible is given lip service. I don't want us to be that kind of church. To wrestle with what Jesus asks us to do, to stare into our own brokenness, to acknowledge our own weakness, and to be clear that we need his grace and mercy. These are the things that we are called to. God can take this community and transform us. My second question is not only will you follow him, but will you sit with him? The picture of sitting in Matthew chapter 5 is the picture of students with a rabbi sitting attentively at his feet. Sitting involves stillness. It involves intentionality. It involves making time. It involves priority. And it involves attentiveness. I am worried that our congregation is losing its ability to be attentive to what God might say. Because everything else is crowding in on us. I invite you to sit with Jesus with me over these weeks and months that lie ahead. And don't think for one minute that what I'm trying to suggest to you in this journey is a kind of detached theological journey that happens in church that has nothing to do with the rest of the world. Far from it. If you want to be an effective human being in your workplace, in your, an effective father, mother, son, daughter, husband, friend, widow, aunt, uncle, neighbor, whatever it might be, the most important thing that you do is sit with Jesus. Harry S. Truman, the former president of the United States, once said this, I do not believe that there is a problem in this country or the world today that could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Could Northern Ireland really be changed if God's people lived out the Sermon on the Mount? Yes, it could. Could British politics get sorted out? Yes, it could. Education? Yes. Healthcare? Yes. Housing? Yes. International policy? Yes. Family life? Yes. Parenting? Yes. There's not an issue that we face that could not be helped by a careful reflection on these words and the teaching of Jesus Christ. I invite you to do that with me. Will you follow him? Will you sit with him? And will we let him teach us? Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. Then he began to speak and taught them to listen to him, to be guided by him, to be challenged by him. If I was to paint your soul on the grey screen behind me and its health, what would I write on it? What if God has brought you to our fellowship? 
for such a time as this? What if 2020 could be a year where you start growing again, if you have stopped? Or will you press into fresh revelation of God if you've already been growing? Will you discover things about him? Will that deep-seated habit, that deep-seated worldview, that cynicism or that criticism or that negativity or that gossip or that greed or that deep-seated desire that you can't shift, what if this is the year that God wants to speak into it? So that you can genuinely be free. Is that not worth pressing into God for? The American theologian Omar Bradley has written this. We have grasped the mystery of the atom. And we have rejected the Sermon on the Mount. The world has achieved brilliance without wisdom, power without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. What if God's calling us to grow up morally and ethically? To lead better lives, to set better examples to our husbands and our wives and our kids and our families and our nephews and our nieces? What if God has more for us than we currently are familiar with or comfortable with? I wonder sometimes whether or not we have to face the reality that when asked how many sermons have you heard Campbell when did you become a Christian are you a Christian no I'm only kidding <laughs> when did you become a Christian uh, the 20th of November 1954 1954 so that's 66 years 76 years 66 years ago let's assume that you've heard on average three sermons a week that's 150, let's say 150 a year. What's 66 times 150? A lot. I know, but what is the number roughly? About 9,000. Yeah, I should have asked. I knew you would have got that. 9,000 sermons. That's a lot of sermons. Some of you might have preached. Pastor Eric McCall might have preached 9,000 sermons. Sometimes I wonder whether we've listened to 9,000 sermons. Or we've listened to one sermon 9,000 times. And I don't mean that as a compliment. When the church's diet is shallow, when we fail to teach scripture, when we allow ourselves to principle and teach on two or three things, it is not the congregation's fault when they're going hungry if we are not feeding them. And I know that this requires effort and I know that it requires stamina and I know that it requires concentration. But I am guaranteeing you something. If you study this sermon with me, your life will be enriched. Not because of my teaching, but because of God's faithfulness. There are huge issues for us to face in our society around justice and ethics and truthfulness and morality and possessions and materialism and individualism and how we cope with disappointment and heartbreak and pain and family breakdown and divorce and sadness and grief and loss. All of it is contained in these messages. I pray that God will speak to you. But I invite you today as the band come to join me again to open your heart to God. Climb the mountain with Jesus. To 
to listen to him as he sits down and begins to teach us and to pay attention to what he might say. This is an invitation not to a sermon series. It's an invitation to come closer. Not to me, but to Christ. It's an invitation to dig deeper into who he is and what he has to say to us. It's an invitation to reach higher. And it's an invitation to go further. Let's pray. Shake us from our complacency, Heavenly Father. And let hope be sparked in our souls by the possibility that we could grow. And I come first in line this morning to confess my need of you. That there are areas of my life that I need you to break into. That there are practices and habits that I need you to break. That there's a mindset that I want you to minister into. I'm asking you to come into my soul and to strengthen my resolve to be more faithful to Jesus Christ. I want to know more of him. I want to understand him more clearly. I want to walk with him more closely. I want to dig deeper into his words. I want a more liberated life of worship and prayer and faithfulness. I don't want to spend my life going around the same mountain again and again and again saying I'm still stuck with it. I don't want to get to 90 and still be addressing the same issues unresolved that I'm addressing when I'm 50. I want to grow, Lord. I pray that across this fellowship you will help us to grow, to go further with you. And for those that are closer to being called home than others, let them finish this race well. And let this flow into our workplaces and into our homes and into our lives and into our families and into our finances and into our public life. Let this series not be about a series of sermons, but let them be messages that change our lives forever. And in this room, as we worship you now, Lord, help us to draw close. To be intentional, that sense of your presence amongst us at the beginning of our meeting. Thank you that it is still here. And in these next 20 minutes or so, meet with us by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray. And draw us further in. In Jesus' name.